Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dialecticon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Srivastava, and I'm your host. This week, we have with us Dr. Raphael Mulier, who is a Robert A. Burt Presidential Scholar in Society and Neuroscience at Columbia University. He completed his PhD in philosophy at the University of Oxford, where he worked on self-consciousness. Hi, Dr. Mulier. How are you today? Hi, uh, I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Of course, thank you for your time and for, for being here today. Uh, before we begin our discussion, Ale did just briefly introduce you. For our audience members, could you please provide a little bit more information on who you are, your background, and your relationship to philosophy? What does philosophy mean to you? How did you get involved? And what are your research interests? Yes, so I am a, a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia University, as you have mentioned. Uh, previously, I, I did my uh, PhD uh, in the UK at the University of Oxford, and I'm, a, I'm originally from, uh, from France, from Paris, when I, where I initially um, studied before my PhD. So I, I, my background has been in philosophy from the beginning, um, from my undergraduate degree, and gradually I moved towards uh, working on topics that related to um, the philosophy of mind and the philosophy of cognitive science. Um, and that led me eventually to move to work uh, more on the philosophy of artificial intelligence um, and um, interact a lot with people working in different disciplines, uh, including computer science and uh, psychology and neuroscience. So um, I think I've, I've always had an interest in uh, questions that are stereotypically philosophical, uh, you know, big questions about uh, life and the world. Um, so I can't really trace back my interest to philo in philosophy to a specific seminal event, as it were. One thing I would say, though, is that in France, we uh, start studying philosophy in high school, which is a bit unusual compared to some other countries. Uh, and I think it's, it's a great thing. And so, you know, from the last year of high school, which is where we start philosophy in France, I really fell in love with with philosophy, and I, I told myself I didn't want to stop asking these questions, both for myself and uh, you know in conversation with other people, and that led me eventually to pursue an academic career. That's awesome. I think um, you know, like the, the story is always always the same for basically everyone I interview. It's always like I've always had these questions, and then they explore it. But I guess like. For countries that aren't like the United States, um, you know, philosophy is more, sometimes at least, um, more available to younger kids. Um, in the United States, we don't have that. So high school philosophy is like scarce. It rarely exists. At, and I mean, and if it does exist, it'll be at like a, a private school or something like that, but definitely not in like the public school education. Um, but it's interesting to see that like, that those can, those types of questions can lead you into other fields. Like I think a lot of people might interpret philosophy to kind of be like that behind the books interpretation of philosophy, writing books and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it can lead to so many different things because philosophy in general has many applications. Um, and it's really, really cool to see that. So let's move on to our discussion today, uh, where we're going to be talking about the philosophy and ethics of AI. Um, and before I want, like, before getting into the nitty gritty um, and some of the nuances of AI, there is a necessity to ask and understand the definition of artificial intelligence in the first place. We see systems like Siri um, on the iPhone and AlphaZero, which is an AI capable of playing high performance chess and it actually beat one of the, uh, the world champions. But what exactly is artificial intelligence and does philosophy treat that definition differently than computer science? 
Right, that's uh, an excellent first question. It's also a very hard one for uh, a number of reasons. Um, partly because there is no universal agreement, uh, and there has never been really any universal agreement on what artificial intelligence or AI uh, is supposed to be and supposed to encompass. So if you want a very uh, broad, somewhat neutral definition, you could say, well, an AI system is an artificial system, so a system designed by humans, by, opposed, by, by contrast with um, biological systems, uh, like biological organisms, humans and non-human animals. Um, so an artificial system that has um, the same range of uh, intelligent capacities uh, as uh, uh, biological organisms we consider intelligent have. So. Uh, then there is a further question about what counts as an intelligent capacity and how can we determine whether a system has uh, uh, intelligent capacities. This is a very complex question. This is why often people turn to looking at um, certain ranges of behaviors that we consider intelligent behaviors. So a classic uh, example would be the so-called Turing test that was designed by Alan Turing, one of the uh, uh, fathers of uh, computer science um, to uh, try to assess whether uh, a machine uh, or an artificial system uh, has some form of, of intelligence or is capable of thinking. And so the Turing test involves um, having uh, a human operator uh, look at a conversation between a human and a machine and trying to determine which which is which, which is the human, which is the machine, right? So this is an example of a test for artificial intelligence that looks at behavior in the form of the uh, conversation and text outputs uh, to try to assess, to make a determination of whether uh, the system can be considered intelligent or not. But this is significantly more complicated because um, the very concept of intelligence is uh, a notion that is difficult to define. And um, you might argue, for example, that it is a multi-dimensional concept, that there are different dimensions to intelligence that are difficult to, uh, to reduce to a single component that can measure, be measured by a single kind of behavioral test. Um, and it is also a somewhat context-sensitive notion. So there is some work in sociology and anthropology um, that suggests that uh, different communities and different cultures around the world have different notions of intelligence that seems to be uh, related to different uh, notions of success. So there is one common finding uh, across these studies, which is that people tend to use uh, the term, you know, what we would call the folk psychological term, so the, the kind of uh, uh, you know, common understanding people have of intelligence, um, seems to be tied to successful behavior or certain notions of success. So we think the people we deem intelligent or the animals we deem intelligent are the ones that can uh, successfully solve certain tasks. But the notion of success itself is context-related and, and, and sensitive, you know, relative to different cultural backgrounds. So what some communities or cultures consider success uh, at certain tasks or in life generally uh, can vary. And so can the definitions of intelligence that they, they, they use. So this is a very thorny question. And uh, in fact, if you look at the history of artificial intelligence and AI research, 
um, people have been steadily moving the goalposts as to why what constitutes intelligence. You mentioned chess playing. Uh, you know, some of the the, the pioneers of AI research uh, in the fifties thought that designing a system that can play chess at human level or at superhuman level would be the pinnacle of accomplishment in AI because that would really demonstrate that the system is, is intelligent. And then came along uh, Deep Blue from IBM that beat Gary Kasparov at the, at the time, the world chess champion uh, at several games of chess. And uh, people very rapidly started saying, well, chess playing was never really the uh, uh, proper benchmark for intelligence. And uh, uh, now we need to have a system that can do these other things. Uh, and chess was actually not that hard to solve. So you have this kind of goalpost moving um, that has been happening throughout the history of AI. As to the final component of your question, which is how the definition of AI might differ between philosophers and computer scientists, I would say that computer scientists tend, as I already mentioned with Alan Turing, tend to focus more on the behavioral tests. So looking at uh, whether AI systems can do certain things uh, and not bother too much with uh, the question of whether the performance of these systems on different tests is really uh, a reflection of an underlying competence that is the same as the kind we ascribe to humans. So it is possible as some uh, people in, in psychology or philosophy might, ar might argue that your performance on a task um, might be you know, identical between you know, the, the, the performance of a human and the performance of an artificial system might be identical, even though the way they achieve that performance is different. And the human has a, a core of uh, cognitive capacities or skills that the artificial system might not have. And the artificial system might be just latching onto uh, more you know, shallow tricks to achieve the same performance. So philosophers are more concerned with that difference and generally are more concerned with getting to, um, you know, to, the, to the core of, of uh, the kinds of, of uh, capacities and mechanisms that uh, enable a system to achieve intelligent behavior as opposed to just looking at uh, measurements with benchmarks. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, well, first of all, I think that the concept of introducing culture to the question of artificial intelligence is a really unique aspect of looking at things. I've always just interpreted it kind of similar to how computer scientists look at it, where it's just like whether or not it can do a task. Then I was like, okay, that's like, seems like it's AI. Um, whereas, you know, obviously there's the there's other question of like how different cultures interpret um, what intelligence really is. And I think that like, since you were saying the goalpost has always been moving, I think that's also true for intelligence as a whole. The intelligence, you know, goalpost also moves as society furthers into more of like a technologicalized state, um, et cetera. And so it's interesting to see those two concepts come together and meet at the intersection of AI, right? And I guess like this, um, this definition uh, contrast between AI or between computer scientists and philosophers is also an interesting divide because, uh, you know, there's the question of whether or not um, whatever AI you have, because it's trained on a data set created by humans and it's coded by humans, there's also the questions of whether or not the underlying competence, as you mentioned, is actually that of the systems. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting questions, I guess, you could could explore. And, you know, 
I, I guess this, this brings us like directly to the next question, which is about like strong AI, right? And I've read a little bit about what strong AI is. And, you know, Alan Turing has this quote where he says that, and I quote, at some stage, therefore, we should have to expect that machines to take control or expect the machines to take control. And that's a quote by Alan Turing, um, which is back in, like in the 1940s, 50s, I think. Um, and so, you know, what exactly is the strong AI? Like, is it even possible, philosophically speaking? Um, and could you please define what, you know, strong AI is in the context of computer science as well? Yes, so the notion of strong AI um, and the distinction between strong AI and weak AI is often traced back to the work of the philosopher John Searle, who um, uh, defined explicitly this distinction. Um, and the way in which he defined this distinction is as follows. So uh, weak artificial intelligence, weak AI, refers to AI systems that can um, perform as if they had the same set of cognitive skills, intelligent capacities that humans have, right? So it's really uh, a notion that is focused on the performance aspect or the behavioral aspect that I talked about before. Whereas strong artificial intelligence or strong AI refers to uh, artificial intelligence systems that actually have uh, all of the cognitive capacities uh, the intelligence capacities and skills we ascribe to humans, uh, including actually uh, in Searle's definition, including consciousness, right? So, so it's not a behavioral uh, uh, definition or a definition that just has to do with performance that we can observe on benchmarks from the outside, uh, but it has to relate to what is actually happening under the hood in these systems and whether we can really ascribe to them the kinds of capacities for uh, reasoning, language understanding, visual understanding, uh, uh, and indeed perhaps things like consciousness that we also ascribe to humans and to some non-human animals. So that's how the, the distinction between strong and weak AI is often characterized. Um, now there is another notion that is discussed a lot uh, these days, which is notion of AGI or artificial general intelligence. And it's also a notion that uh, is debated because the, you know, not everyone agrees on how to even define it. Um, but you know, broadly speaking, AGI would refer to um, AI systems that uh, have uh, the kind of intelligence that can generalize to a broad set of problems, a broad set of tasks, uh, as opposed to artificial narrow intelligence or ANI, which would refer to AI systems that are designed to solve narrowly one specific task or maybe a few tasks, but you can think of AlphaGo that you mentioned that is designed to play uh, Go or AlphaZero that can play uh, Go and chess and Shogi, I think, so like three different games. Um, uh, and so these, are, these would be artificial narrow uh, intelligent systems. And the notion of AGI is not completely um, the same as the notion of strong AI, because uh, you can see that these are, uh, as we would say in philosophy, orthogonal notions. Uh, or, or the, the, the distinction between strong AI and weak AI and artificial general intelligence and artificial narrow intelligence are orthogonal. In the following sense, um, you could define define 
artificial general intelligence is strictly behavioral terms, strictly by looking at the performance of a system. And that would uh, be consistent with weak AI. So you can have an AGI system uh, that uh, is defined purely in terms of its performance on a broad range of tasks. And that could be a weak AI system in Searle's sense, right? Uh, but you could also have uh, a, a, a strong AI system uh, that, um, well, in fact, any strong AI system in, in Searle's sense would have to, to be an AGI uh, system, right? So uh, whether or not something qualifies as AGI um, doesn't uh, fully determine whether it counts as strong AI or weak AI in Searle's sense, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I think like this, um, this concept of, I guess, like, or I guess specifying which uh, types of products and stuff like that, like we mentioned Alpha Zero and Alpha Go are narrow AI um, or alpha, like, yeah, ANI and alpha, uh, artificial general intelligence is kind of more of a, of a, of a I guess, larger thing you could say, because it's, it's doing more things than a narrow, uh, narrow AI would do. Um, and I guess like, you know, what, what intrigued me the most was like when you were talking about strong AI was the concept of consciousness being embedded within strong AI because, or like whatever the definition that you had provided by the philosopher. Um, because I think like the, that notion that there needs to be consciousness um, is, is super interesting because we as like, I guess like as philosophy has, has moved on, we still have not been able to figure out exactly how consciousness works, uh, like what specifically makes up. I mean, I know there's like, there's neurobiological studies and there's obviously computation studies to figure out neural networks and stuff like that. And obviously philosophy as well. Still, there has no been. There's no real consensus, and obviously, the hard problem of consciousness still hasn't been figured out. Which is a reference to uh, to Chalmers, who who has done some some research in in the field of consciousness. And it's interesting to see how, like, I guess in in a sense, it seems really optimistic to see that there could be a potential for like artificial consciousness when we still haven't figured out consciousness in the human human mind, which is really interesting. But I want to get into like the ethics of AI now, because a large part of how the world is moving or a large part of the world is moving towards AI now. And, you know, obviously we're moving into like a very, very uh, technology based world. And there is a lot of news on the ethics of AI. And you can trace back to news articles on not just uh, like in companies, but also in governmental institutions where AI is used in terms of incarcerating people for the wrong reasons. And I remember, but I remember specifically in the context of Google that they fired uh, Tamin Gebru and Margaret Michelle, um, which made a lot of traction, especially on Twitter. Um, could you explain what that case was about and what exactly their firing means in the context of institutions and I guess companies that are using AI technologies for profit? So I don't know that I'm necessarily the most uh, uh, qualified and the best placed person to, to discuss the intricacies of that particular case. I am not privy to what happened. Uh, uh, at Google at that time, I only have, uh, you know, like everyone, I read some some articles and some statements from from Tim Neat, Gebru and and from Melanie Mitchell, um, sorry, from Margaret Mitchell, um, about what happened. But um, here is how I could attempt to summarize what happened based on on public information. And again, I I don't pretend to to know exactly how this unfolded, but essentially. Um, Timnit Gebru, Margaret Mitchell, and some other authors, uh, Emily Bender, uh, wrote a paper uh, called uh, Stochastic Parrots, uh, 
on the and then there was a subtitle that I forget, but it was a paper on uh, so-called large language models, which are which is refers to a class of algorithms um, that uh, use the dominant technology in AI research today, which is deep learning. Um, so these are algorithms called artificial neural networks that are loosely inspired in their design from biological brains, and uh, that can be uh, trained on a lot of data crawled from the internet instead of having uh, programmers and engineers manually uh, distill some human knowledge into this, the, the, the programming of these algorithms. You can just train them on all of this data so that they can learn by themselves to um, um, induce certain properties of the domain to which the data belongs. And in the case of large language models, these are algorithms trained on a vast amount of text, a significant subset of the whole internet, which would include uh, basically all of English Wikipedia and uh, thousands of books and millions of web pages. And so these algorithms through this training protocol um, learn how to generate coherent texts. So they learn how to generate texts that to uh, a regular human person who might not have any uh, prior exposure to this technology uh, might look like it has been written by another human in the sense that it is grammatically coherent, topically relevant, uh, and uh, you know, also statistically uh, coherent. So uh, what you can do with these models is you, you can prompt them, uh, as we say, with um, one sentence or a few sentences, and it can autocomplete this prompt, this input from the humans with one or several paragraphs of text. And these models have gotten very good at at least providing the illusion of understanding through this kind of automatic completion of text. And the thing about human beings is that we are very prone to anthropomorphism. So when we see an AI system, or indeed even some uh, non-human animals, think about how people behave uh, you know, with their pets and how people ascribe sometimes some very sophisticated beliefs and desires and you know, uh, psychological traits to their pets. Um, and this is not to say that obviously that that the kind of pets that, that people have, like cats and dogs, are not intelligent animals and don't have experiences. But it's just an example that sometimes we are prone to perhaps uh, being overly um, enthusiastic in the way we ascribe certain psychological traits to uh, non-human animals and in, and indeed to uh, artificial systems. And so, given that when we are confronted with such a system that can generate text, it's very easy for us to feel that this is a system that has human level understanding of language, and in fact, an understanding of the world, and perhaps even think that this system has a personality and goals and beliefs and desires, and that this system in fact, perhaps even has experiences. So um, this paper that was published by Tim Lidgebru and Margaret Mitchell and others like Emily Bender um, was pushing back against that tendency and uh, was taking a rather skeptical um, line uh, of interpretation of this, what these models actually do, calling them stochastic parrots, essentially saying that like parrots, they repeat um, um, you know, almost canned phrases without having any understanding of their meaning. And um, 
the paper also uh, raised a different uh, other ethical concerns about these models, especially the, the fact that they are trained, uh, that training requires a lot of computational power, uh, which in turn uses a lot of energy. So there are some environmental concerns about the cost of training these models. Uh, concerns also about their downstream use and whether uh, we can avoid replicating biases present in the training data in the outputs of these models. We know that it can be prone to, uh, um, <clears throat> if you prompt them in a certain way, uh, producing text that uh, includes various stereotypes or biases or harmful uh, discourse, uh, in fact, hateful speech in some cases, uh, that can include uh, uh, racist and sexist uh, uh, biases. So all of these concepts were brought up in this paper. And um, there is, as far as I understand, um, an internal review process at Google where some Google researchers, so in that case, Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell were the head of the ethics team at Google. <clears throat> um, when some Google researchers want to publish a paper, they have to first um, submit it for internal approval. There's an internal review and then uh, they can get the green light. Um, and I think at least what uh, Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell, um, the way they told the story is that they send the paper for approval, but the approval didn't come in time. Uh, and so they submitted it to a conference. And um, then Google asked them to retract the submission because the paper hadn't been approved internally. And uh, at that point, I think Timnit Gebru published some kind of open letter or statements. Um, I think it was in the open. I'm not confident 100% about that, but she sent, either it was sent, sending an email to a large group of people or like writing an open letter. Um, that was, um, um, you know, uh, expressing frustration with the process, internal review process at Google and the way things had unfolded. And I think she also wanted to know who at Google was a person who had done the internal review. And um, <clears throat> so she had a set of, of, I think, questions and demands. And following that, uh, Google interpreted uh, this document essentially as uh, an ultimatum uh, that uh, Google was not prepared to meet and so interpreted it as an effective resignation from Tinit Gebru. Um, and Tinit Gebru in interpreted that that whole sequence of events as uh, something that led to her being fired and not uh, resigning from Google. So there was there was this um, mismatch in the way the company represented what happened and in the way Timnit and Margaret represented what happened. Margaret Mitchell was also subsequently fired from Google. Uh, and this whole this whole story, and again, I don't have the full picture probably, but did raise some alarms among people concerned about AI ethics and concerned about how AI ethics is, can, is or, or is not compatible with the incentives of uh, the industry. Because uh, at the end of the day, companies uh, have a duty to their shareholders, um, a fiduciary duty that um, means that the kind of incentives they have uh, may not align well with uh, uh, ethical uh, uh, guidelines that are proposed by AI researchers. So there is a real question as to how, um, how much you can do genuine 
uh, work in AI ethics in the industry. I think it's an ongoing debate and I think uh, it's a complex issue and there is no single response to that. And there are a lot of companies like uh, Hugging Face, which does, uh, which is leading the, 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 the movement uh, um, in, in the open source space in AI research, uh, or uh, Anthropic AI, which is another startup that emerged recently, that are really uh, making, uh, as far as I can see, uh, honest efforts to uh, do uh, uh, responsible research on AI ethics in the industry. And in fact, Margaret Mitchell is, is now has ended up uh, being hired by Hugging Face to work for them. So uh, I don't want to give a simplistic uh, you know, representation of that discussion, but there is a concern that some companies might be doing what people call ethics washing, by analogy with greenwashing and other, other, other terms like that. Um, essentially having paying lip service to ethic to AI ethics by having a team doing AI ethics, but having that team being more or less muzzled and not being able to have any bites and being able to do anything uh, really about the kind of activity that, the, the, uh, that that is going on in the company. And I, you know, my own students at Columbia came to me, several of them, after I took the first class on the philosophy of AI last semester at Columbia. And, you know, several of them wanted to work on AI ethics and were interested in working on AI ethics in the industry. And I essentially told them what I'm telling you now, which is it's a complex discussion. And I think it's a, you know, one has to um, assess on a case by case basis, how genuine the intentions of a specific company are in terms of uh, doing serious research on AI ethics. Uh, it seems to me that some companies do genuinely, genuinely care about that, but the whole thing that happened around the firing of Tinit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell did raise some concern, uh, this for some very large companies. That definitely makes sense. And thanks for clarifying that. I, mean, I know like maybe not the entire story is there, but at least enough is there to like kind of understand it. Cause from what I'd heard, um, like I hadn't deep done, like done deep dive or anything into it, but what, from what I'd heard, um, and kind of just how like word travels around it seemed that or like the narrative was kind of that like there was this paper that kind of opposes google in a way and then google took a response to it um and that that's what you know the, the the common interpretation of it could be and so that like clarification is good and i think it's important just for every everything that you do to figure out whether or not the ethics or like i guess the intention behind the corporation is really what you also agree with because that's just a good way to to kind of figure out things obviously there's a lot of other things to look at, but that is definitely a good um, good idea, especially for anyone who's going into computer science um, and wants to like kind of understand how things are, things are going, because I think it's going to be a huge, huge part of computer science uh, in the near future, just especially as our technology is just rapidly expanding and getting more powerful day by day. I want to move into um, another question about specifically bias um, and how that bias forms. So we talked a little bit about um, kind of about like the ways in which some texts can 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 be represented that's misogynistic or you know incredibly racist. Um, so how does that bias? How is that bias formed um, in inside of models? Yes, that is also a fantastic question and a complicated one, uh, perhaps um, more complex than it looks at first. So one common way in which bias emerges in uh, these artificial neural networks that are trained on a massive uh, set of data. Um, is when the data itself on which they are trained, the training data, uh, has some statistical bias. So 
it might be, for example, that um, uh, give you one example. Uh, it might be that uh, in the training data for a large language model of the kind I have just mentioned, uh, the term nurse is statistically uh, more often co-occurring with reference to women than reference to men, right? And the term CEO statistically co-occurs more frequently with the reference to men than reference to emphasis to women, right? If that's the case, then if you train your model on that data, it will probably reflect that statistical bias in its output. In other words, if you prompt it to talk about CEOs, it may uh, be more likely to um, uh, be uh, you know, talking about men as typical examples of CEO or, or just uh, assuming that any CEO that is talked about is a man. Is a man. And uh, conversely, for the example of uh, the nurse, assume that uh, uh, a nurse is typically female and uh, that any nurse is woman. And uh, that kind of um, bias is also can be reflected in other kinds of models. So you have now models that are um, image generation models that are also prompted with text and I can generate uh, an image uh, based on text. So if some of the listeners want to uh, experiment with this kind of model, uh, there is one that is open source actually on, on that, uh, uh, that that is made available by Hugging Face, which is that, that company I mentioned earlier, uh, called DALI Mini. So D-A-L-L-E uh, dash M-I-N-I. So you can find it easily on Google. Um, and uh, you can prompt it with any text, any description, and it generates these small-ish images uh, based on the descriptions, right? And this kind of model can also reflect the similar biases. So if you uh, prompted to generate an image of a CEO, it might have a higher likelihood of producing images of men. And if you prompted to generate an image of a nurse, you might have a higher likelihood of producing uh, images of women. So that's an example of bias that is inherited from certain statistical properties um, of the training data. Um, a, another kind of bias might be uh, uh, just, you know, if your training data includes um, straight up harmful uh, biased speech, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, such as sexist or racist statements, uh, then, you know, your model will also be likely to uh, produce such statements. Uh, so, the, the kind of bias I mentioned before might not explicitly come from, uh, you know, racist or sexist intentions, right? It might just be that statistically in the world in which we live in today, because of, of, of historical patterns of inequality and sexism or racism, for example, uh, CEOs are more likely to be men and nurses more likely to be female. And that's, 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 not, that's not a normative claim, obviously, is just a descriptive term based on the patterns of historical inequalities that, you know, in, in uh, uh, modern Western societies have, have been occurring. So this is why you would get the statistical bias on the, in the outputs of your model in the first case. Now, what I'm talking about in the second case would be a case where uh, you have, because of the web pages on which your model is trained, which might include, you know, some pages from social media like Reddit or uh, uh, you know, other sources of uh, uh, web data that might contain sexist or racist statements, then your model trained on that data may also make uh, 
sexist and racist statements uh, just because it is trained to mimic the way in which humans speak, right? So there was a, a recent example of that that is that was quite alarming. There's this uh, uh, YouTuber called uh, Yannick Kilcher, I think, who um, for one of his recent videos trained the new language models, language, language models, sorry, uh, on uh, a data set that was made of uh, lots of pages from the forum 4chan, uh, which uh, is a, a forum that that does doesn't do any moderation of speech and uh, contains a lot of very vitriolic uh, threads that include uh, racist slur, slurs, uh, all sorts of vile discourse, uh, uh, you know, vice, uh, uh, terrible sexist and racist uh, harmful speech. And so this uh, person trained the model on pages from that site just to see what would happen and and how you know the outputs would reflect uh what we see in that data set and indeed the model that was trained uh was uh, a kind of nightmarish model that would autocomplete any prompt with uh basically uh extremely harmful speech um initially this model was hosted on uh in the database of Hugging Face, this company I mentioned that has uh, uh, thousands of open source models that are hosted on, on its, on its uh, website. And you can, in fact, test the models there. I mentioned you can test Dali Mini. And for a few days, you could also test this uh, model to an unfortunate. And that prompted a renewed discussion on uh, the issue of whether we should make all of these models accessible uh, and what kind of you know, ethical discussion uh, should go into the release of these models. In particular, this model had no real benefits beyond perhaps, you know, studying how bias might be reflected in a model, but releasing this model publicly, that was essentially a model trained to produce the most racist, sexist, vile outputs, uh, didn't really provide any benefit to the broader community. And so it was taken down eventually. But these are examples of how bias can find its way into these models. Oh yeah, that's really interesting to learn, um, not just in the context of, of like how bias can form, but also like the effects that bias can have in terms of models and model building. And I guess it also kind of relates back to um, the underlying question that we had on uh, when we were talking about strong AI, when we were talking about like whether the actual competence of the model um, is the model itself or whether or not it's human trained, which in, just, in the context of this bias, it seems that it can be human trained that is making uh, more influences on the machine's output, right? Um, so that's a really interesting, interesting topic, and I guess there's probably going to be a lot more discussion in the future about what to do about that bias and how to mitigate that bias, um, because I think like almost every single day I open Twitter and there's always some news about something in the field of AI ethics, because every single day there's something new. Um, but I want to talk now about your paper. Um, you wrote a paper called Deep Learning and Synthetic Media. Um, and first, can you explain what deep learning is and what the deep fake images you are inside of this paper? And then could you explain how the arrival of these deep fake images is currently challenging the traditional taxon taxonomical distinctions uh, in terms of like synthetic media? Yes, um, so deep learning uh, essentially refers to um, this approach to AI research that I already talked about using these artificial neural networks loosely inspired from uh, the, the the human brain or biological brains. Uh, I say loosely because it's the brain is vastly vastly more complex than artificial neural networks, but um, <clears throat> they're loosely inspired from brains, and they can learn from raw data, right? So deep learning just refers to 
um, the the approach to these neural networks where you you, you have a neural network that <clears throat> is has a certain size so has as we would say in computer science a lot of layers um, basically a neural network is a set of units or artificial neurons that are connected to each other in different layers and the information flows from the input units in the input layer to the output units in the output layer through different hidden intermediate layers we no need to go into the details, but deep learning just refers to um, <clears throat> the, the approach to AI research that consists in training large artificial neural networks on a lot of data, uh, to simplify. And so I wrote this paper that was looking specifically on recent advances in AI research with this deep learning approach to, to generate audiovisual media. So generate images, generate videos, or generate um, audio uh, uh, files like like music or speech. Um, and there has been really tremendous progress in that area over the past uh, five to 10 years. Uh, the things we are capable to do uh, of doing today would have seemed like complete science fiction uh, just a few short years ago. Uh, I mentioned DALI Mini, which is freely accessible where you can give a sentence and the model produces these low resolution images. Uh, there is one, similar model that is not freely accessible at this time called DALI2 that was made by a company called OpenAI. Uh, currently, uh, access is only given to uh, a restricted number of people, including researchers that do research on it. So I have access to it. Uh, and this can generate really mind-blowing images that are much higher resolution than DALI Mini and much higher quality. So you can essentially give it a description of almost anything and it can generate either, depending on how on what you want, photorealistic images that look like like photographs, or paintings that look like they were have been made by, you know, artists. And it's really it's really quite impressive. And so that raises questions about <clears throat> the way in which traditionally we partition different kinds of uh, audiovisual media. So we can have this broad dichotomy between. Uh, handmade media like painting by hand and machine made media that are made with the use of a computer or a machine like a, like a photograph like a, uh, a photograph ca photographic camera uh, as a tool right uh, and then we can have further distinction in the machine made media between those that we could that i call archi archival media that just capture reality as it is to simplify it's a bit naive to put it that way but you know, there is this kind of direct unmediated connection to reality when you take a picture with a camera um, versus ones that uh, are uh, synthetic in some way that involve uh, humans um, kind of creating uh, a piece of audiovisual media, uh, either from scratch or by modifying another piece of media uh, with a computer. So think of, for example, uh, Photoshop, you can take a picture and modify it there, uh, but you can also use a 3D modeling software to just uh, uh, model a 3D uh, image from scratch, right? Um, and the the advent of these new approaches to media synthesis with deep learning is somewhat blurring the boundary between these different categories. So you mentioned the notion of deep fake, which is a specific form of uh, media synthesis with deep learning. And the classical example involves taking a video and replacing the face of someone in the video with someone else's face. 
So the, the deep fakes, uh, this technology came onto the stage a few years ago uh, and was initially used, uh, I think it was initially on, 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 the, on Reddit uh, by a user that went by deepfake, hence the name that, that stuck, um, and who was making pornographic videos of celebrities by taking pornographic videos and replacing the faces of, of actors and actresses with the faces of celebrities using this technology. Uh, that immediately raised a lot of alarms and concerns um, from a lot of people saying this is deeply unethical. Uh, you're essentially uh, uh, using someone's likeness, someone's physical appearance, and uh, uh, to create these fake videos that uh, could cause uh, reputational harm or other kinds of harm to the people involved. Um, and since then, there have been concerns about the use of this technology to create uh, fake news more generally uh, and weaponize this technology to, for example, create false videos of politicians saying things that they haven't said. Uh, there was a real life example recently when Vladimir Zelensky was deep faked into a video, uh, uh, presumably by Russian operatives, uh, uh, I think announcing that, that he was capitulating. So there was this deep fake video that was produced that was fake, where he was making a speech that he never gave, uh, saying that he was capitulating. So these are examples of deep fakes, and they can be used for uh, these harmful purposes, and they can also be used of the, the, the broader family of synthetic uh, uh, media made with deep learning. Uh, this kind of approach can also be used for more creative, uh, benign purposes by artists, uh, for example, or by creative people. Um, and so I discussed the whole range of applications in my paper, but I, I, I'm more focused not so much on the the potential harmful use of this technology, but the fact that it's it's really starting to blur the line between what should count as um, archival versus synthetic media and different kinds of things synthetic media. So for example, the way in which you would generate uh, human faces with a deep learning algorithm would to train your algorithm on a massive data set of images, right? Uh, real images, real pictures of human faces. And then you can have an algorithm that can generate photorealistic human faces. And there is a real question as to the extent to which the generated faces um, are, you know, um, completely synthetic, uh, or well, you know, given that they reflect statistical properties of real pictures of real people that were in the training set, uh, they might actually uh, reflect a lot of you know, real world features of some of the people that were photographed in the training set. And in fact, you know, uh, you could have an output from some, one of the systems that looks virtually identical to one of the images it was trained on because the systems are producing, capable of producing the whole range of uh, uh, human faces, including the very same human faces as the one that were in the training data. So, this is an example of the kind of question that is raised by this technology, but I, I'm not going to elaborate too much. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And I think like this is um, kind of like how trends are going to move in the future as well as technology expands and specifically deep learning expands, just because um, like the quantification of like, I remember like, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is necessarily classified as deep fake or not, but there was like, there is this website where you can go on and it's just a random it's just a random face that never that doesn't exist like that person does not exist but the face looks really really real and it's built on like it's, it's created through ai and like it's all it's, it's really really interesting to see how 
that level of computation is, is, is there already and that we're able to do this. And so there's going to be, I think, at least a lot more questions in the future raised. And I think, um, like, you know, because you're going to be at the forefront of those questions, you know, as an ethicist and like exploring those questions, it's going to be really interesting to see how, uh, you know, it pans out in terms of classifying what that is. And I do want to ask you just because, you know, um, I've heard from a lot of philosophers that, you know, are unfortunately like philosophers aren't really treated, um, like their work isn't really evaluated to the highest degree as they, they, they might be or might need to be. Um, you know, for example, like in the legal sector, legal epistemology isn't necessarily considered as a higher factor than maybe like law work, et cetera. Um, so how does like, you know, the work that you're doing, especially like, you know, you've identified that there is a challenging of traditional like distinctions. How should governments respond to this in terms of, I guess, like the protection of citizens um, and ensuring that, you know, quote, no ex existential risk occurs from AI um, and is developed with AI. Is there any research or is there any like say that you guys have uh, as philosophers on this and, and what is the general trend going towards? Yeah, that's also a great question. So I think indeed uh, thinking about AI governance and the regulation of AI is very important and is increasingly important. And uh, various regulatory bodies and governments are aware of this, uh, both the US and the European Union have um, uh, been putting into place uh, some uh, um, uh, reflection committees to think about the regulation of AI. Um, and the EU initiative in particular is interesting because they appealed to a number of academics to, to um, assemble uh, a team of experts to uh, collectively agree on a set of guidelines for regulation that are now public and have been published. And these included philosophers. So um, I think that's an example of how people can work across disciplines and how um, um, regulatory bodies and governments uh, and various uh, uh, institutions can uh, appeal to academics and uh, um, kind of harness their uh, work and reflections uh, in a collaborative spirit across disciplines to try to shape uh, the way in which we as a society want to deal with AI and how to regulate this technology. I think AI is a is a, a, a perfect example of a dual use technology. Uh, you can also think of nuclear power as another example, which is a technology that can be used both for peaceful uh, and uh, beneficial purposes or for and for military or nefarious purposes right um, and so this is one of the reasons why we need regulation now that, that you, you mentioned existential risk and it might be worth mentioning that there are two very broad set of issues that people are concerned with in AI ethics there are the short-term issues that concern the harm that AI is already doing right now uh, that the use of algorithms uh, we have right now can uh, incur uh, either right now or maybe in the sh in the short term in the near future. Uh, so these, for example, would include uh, re reflections about the biases reflected in the in the models that we already discussed, uh, reflections about the uh, environmental costs of these models that we also mentioned, um, and then you have a different set of issues that relate to the more long term possibilities of harm uh, from the development of AI. And there you have a, a number of people who have argued that uh, in the long term, AI could pose an existential risk for humanity as a whole, 
that is could threaten the very existence of uh, humanity uh, in the long term. And uh, the kind of argument that has been put forward in favor of that claim is that if we reach at some point artificial intelligence that is uh, at human level or indeed that goes beyond human level, so uh, what some people call super intelligence, intelligence that is, a, that is uh, in the form of artificial intelligence that is more intelligent than humans in basically every respect, um, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to uh, constrain uh, what this system can do because it can outsmart us in every way. Um, and um, if you have a further assumption, which is that the, um, the level of intelligence of a system can come apart from its values, uh, and such that a super intelligent system uh, is not guaranteed to share the same set of values that we humans have. And of course, it's more complicated because humans themselves disagree about the values they care about. This is why we have such uh, deep political divisions. But um, you know, if uh, being super intelligent doesn't guarantee that you have values that are broadly aligned with human values, uh, then in order to achieve whatever its goals are, such a system might end up um, completely disregarding the things that we humans care about, including the long-term survival of our species. So uh, this is vastly simplifying uh, the discussions that are happening in that space. Um, and people do think that one of the reasons why we need to regulate AI is also to, when we think about these long-term issues, but other people emphasize that perhaps we shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't uh, allocate too many resources to these longer-term issues that, for some people, are belong more to the realm of science fiction, and we should allocate more resources and and focus the regulatory questions on the short-term uh, issues with 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 harm and bias and bias ethical issues that are already uh, concerning all of us today with the algorithms we have today. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, this is a great, uh, you know, I guess, focus point for many students or not, maybe not a focus point, but at least keeping this in the back of your mind for a lot of students who might be going into computer science to explore that field, that there's always going to be these questions, underlying ethical questions, but also underlying philosophical questions, which we mentioned about strong AI um, and overall, just the entire field of, comp uh, of computer science has a lot of questions that entangle with philosophy. Um, so I think like there's a lot of interest here, not on the computational lens, but also on a philosophical lens um, and how those two things come together. Um, that about wraps up our discussion today. I do want to thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for your time today. Um, I learned a lot and I'm sure our audiences as well, especially on a topic that's so pertinent to all of us uh, within this within this like highly, highly advanced society. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.